1: The only thing right now that really binds Southeast Asia is trade and security, which is to say that the only thing that binds Southeast Asia right now is China. What has China got on our president? What's got uh, his tongue tied?
2: He's, he's very desperate and he, he's a man with a very big ego.
1: I think it's a PR stunt. I think Facebook is part of the problem and they're not part of the solution.
3: G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that talks about the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by Policy Forum and the National Security College at the ANU. And on this podcast, we are joined by three journalists from Southeast Asia. And in this discussion, we covered a range of issues such as regional security and the impact of China's rise and America's current leadership. We looked at the impact of the new media landscape and the issue of fake news, as well as the outcomes of the most recent Indonesian elections. And to add a little bit of spice, this podcast was recorded very soon after the recent raids by the Australian Federal Police on the ABC and News Corp journalists due to their publication of issues regarded as national security secrets. As well, the pod was recorded on the day that the Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte decided that he knew better than everyone involved and stated that a Chinese vessel did not ram a Filipino fishing vessel, but that it was merely an honest collision. An issue I also discussed with our guests, who were, in no particular order, Sita Dewi. She is the Deputy Editor on the National Desk at the Jakarta Post, where she and her team covers politics, law and human rights. In 2015, she was a recipient of an Australia Awards Scholarship and undertook a Master of Asia-Pacific Studies here at the ANU. Yay! And we also have Robbie Allen who is the editor-in-chief of Business World. He anchors the nightly newscast, The Big Story on Bloomberg, Philippines, and co-anchors The Chiefs on One News TV 5. He is also well known for his strong support of press freedom in the Philippines. And we have Tana boon He is a journalist at the Bangkok Post with experience covering international and domestic news, reporting on ASEAN, the Rohingya crisis, and Thailand's relations in the region. It was a great conversation, so let's hear it now. G'day, Robbie, Tana, Cedar. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for, Thank having, you. Us. for having us. So you've come from a fairly warm climate, and we've brought you to Canberra in the middle of winter. Mm. How's that going for you?
2: It's good. I actually like the cold. I I lived in Canberra for two years, um, so yes,
3: you're you're an ANU alumni, right? If I believe, yeah,
2: correctly. yeah. And um, I've been missing the cold actually. <laughs> oh really? Yeah.
3: You're, you're one of very few Canberrans who who miss know, the cold. I know. I yeah. know. <laughs> Is it very cold for either of you, or for Robbie and Tana, or do you uh, find it this refreshing?
1: I had uh, underestimated the cold to be to be <laughs> honest. I was looking forward to it. I'm coming from uh, 38 degree. Uh, weather in, in Manila. I was looking forward to Melbourne, uh, Canberra, Sydney, and uh, but uh, I have to admit I had, uh, I had underestimated it.
4: Yeah. yeah, I agree with Broby. The weather in Thailand is very, very, sometimes it's hot and now it's rainy. So when, when I come here, it's very cold.
3: Yeah, well, our rain turns to snow down here, so uh, yeah, we, we, can, we can do without some of that as well. Well, let's warm things up now with the conversation, and I want to start off by asking you about the Indo-Pacific concept, and this is a concept that has a fairly strong home here at the National Security College with our head of college, Rory Medcalf. He was one of the early proponents of looking at the the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean becoming a single system because of the economic ties largely through a rising China and its access to natural resources in the Middle East and the Indian Ocean region. How has the Indo Pacific concept been grasped in your countries? Is this, is this a new concept? And and what are your thoughts on this? Starting with you, Robbie?
1: Well, to be honest, it's it's very new. I doubt if uh, many people have have heard of it in, in the context of a direction or or a movement or a proposal. Uh, conceptually, you know, it's uh, you know people have referred to to Asia in general in in many 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 ways. Uh, conceptually, it's it's not new, but as a movement, the first time I heard it, uh, honestly even as a journalist even as somebody who lived in bangkok uh for 6 years leading a regional organization on on media i i never encountered it until a couple of weeks ago when uh, former philippine ambassador delia albert former foreign affairs secretary as well uh referred to it mentioned it at an asia society event in um, in the philippines and she did say with a wink to the audience uh, better get used to this uh to this term because you will be hearing more of it. My initial reaction was actually to wins because I think uh, the larger you try to capture this region, and I won't even call it Asia, but the larger you try to widen the scope, the the more unwieldy it becomes. To be perfectly honest, I think uh, even in the Philippines, people are still grappling with what ASEAN uh, itself uh, means we don't even pronounce it the same way the rest of the region does. I
3: just <laughs> uh, picked up on that, yeah. <laughs>
1: uh, so, uh, but so so that's a that's a thing. Uh, then people carve out uh, China as its own. Uh, people uh, can make a very very clear distinction between uh, Northeast North Asia with with Southeast Asia and so on. And frankly, the Southeast Asians have a very weak concept even of South Asia. Uh, I understand it from a market uh, trade uh, standpoint. Uh, I think uh, heading uh, east uh, of Asia and looking at the Pacific, um, APEC has uh, more or less defined that quite well. But if you were to expand it further and define it heading, heading I just feel that the the concept becomes much much. Uh, too too unwieldy. I understand the, the the interest in trying to get India in to balance China, but I, I do have some trepidation on what that might mean, uh, given that in a in 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 Southeast Asia, what limits our capacity to to really grasp a community concept is, and I've said this again and again. Uh, what are the values? So you you've
3: touched on the idea of regionalism there and you know we have regionalism in places like the EU or um Mercosur and areas like this in the world and ASEAN or Southeast Asia itself is is a very interesting idea for a region because you have a large archipelagic uh, maritime Southeast Asia, but you also have the peninsula mainland mm. Southeast Asia as well that have very different realities in terms of everything from cultures to the challenges that they deal with in daily life. Southeast Asia, in my understanding of history, wasn't even seen as a region until I think it was the Second World War mm. as, as a theater of war for, for the British command. Right. Now, you talked about um, economics and, and there has been... Been this push to move towards the uh, ASEAN style of regionism, for example, the ASEAN Economic Community. Mm -hmm. How are your thoughts on how that's moving forward? Is is that a more challenged concept, or is that a a natural fit for ASEAN?
1: I actually, I think the economic community as a yes is is more tangible. A lot, not a lot of people are aware of, of of the term, but ironically, I I my sense is the the concept of an economic community is clearer to. To people, uh, certainly to to uh, very influential and very, very powerful sectors, the business sectors, governments, uh, in terms of looking at the potentially a common market, it's a it's a much much more tangible concept than the concept of an ASEAN community. Um, um, I think the ASEAN community is. Uh, is it's it's never really been uh realized and it's never really been uh, expressed in terms as i said of of, of values uh, the history of asean prior to the founding of the organization was that you know mafilindo was a basically a containment uh, strategy um this was born in the late uh, 60s as a reaction to the to the dominoes falling, as it were, uh, to communism in in Southeast Asia, and that was really the start, I think, of the germination of looking at uh, of looking at uh, Southeast Asia as a contiguous region. But it But I think it's important to remember it. It started out as a containment strategy. Then eventually you expand to include Singapore. Um, but by the time it was formalized, there were no values defining what it is. Remember that this is a region where all religions all religions are different. You have Muslim, Buddhist, uh, Philippines is the only Christian-dominated uh, country. You have Hindus and so on. We don't have a common language the way the European Union has, uh, French, English, and Spanish. So we're not bound by any common and. And even the systems of government, and for that matter, the expressed values of those government, whether it's democracy, human rights, transparency, governance, and so on, nothing binds us. You go from an absolute monarchy to to a constitutional monarchy, to a one-party system, to, as we say, the democracies that uh, countries tend to uh, fall in and out of, and there's nothing that binds us. And so the... The only thing right now that really binds and the Southeast Asia is trade and security, which is to say that the only thing that binds Southeast Asia right now is China and we
3: will certainly be getting onto that topic but just staying on ASEAN for a minute. Uh, Sita, yeah. I remember in uh, President Madodo's first term uh, as he was a, a new fledged president there was an advisor telling him that he should be looking at a post-ASEAN era and essentially a, a an era where Indonesia is more of a leader of the region rather than first among equals let's say. What is what is the centre? Towards ASEAN and towards regionalism, um, not only amongst uh, Indonesia's political elite, but just among Indonesians in general?
2: Well, I think in Indonesia, it's similar to the Philippines, where ASEAN or even Indo Pacific is not as popularly understood at the grassroots level. Um, so it's a very elitist uh, concept. People don't really grasp. Um, the benefit uh, and don't really understand, don't really know how to be beneficially a part of the, the regional grouping, except for maybe that Indonesian people can travel around um, Southeast Asian country without visa. Joko Widodo is not a president that is keen to have a bigger uh, role in, in the world stage. Uh, he's a pretty much a very uh, domestic Minded uh, politician, and he emphasized it uh, himself a few times that domestic politics uh, require more attention rather than uh, international politics. But uh, he does prioritize certain stuff that uh, he that he thinks are very important, uh, including G twenty and uh, ASEAN. So, um, and I think Indonesia understands that Indonesia in uh, the Southeast Asia region is a the largest economy, the largest country, and so it can play a very influential role in the region, and then it can further push for a bigger role uh, in the international stage through ASEAN.
3: And so, I heard the term mentioned from Robbie just a minute ago, the democracies. (laughs) It's the first time I've heard that, and I, I couldn't think of anything more appropriate, not only for Australia with our revolving door prime ministership and what's going on with Brexit and the leadership in the UK, but also in the US. We have a, a very interesting president in the US that has really... Um, made some of the countries in the region rethink its uh, relationship with the US and how it acts in the region. Tana, can I ask what impact uh, the coming of President Trump and his administration, uh, what that has had in the way that Thailand, as in the government, the military, but also as Thai people see the US, its position in the region and its relationship with Thailand?
4: Uh, I think when it comes to the US, the Thai government's they, is, they, they, they are very flexible and, and domestic in the way they form the relationship with, with the U.S. alliance. For example, uh, next month, uh, Mike Pompeo will visit Thailand at the end of July, and he is going to, uh, to discuss regional issues and going to, to talk about uh, the Mekong, the Lower Mekong Initiative, so it's like the U.S. side is trying to recommit itself to to the region, to the ASEAN, and this come at the time when when China is trying to asserting its role in in, in the region. So I think f- from the point of view of Thailand, it's like we we welcome everything. We doesn't take side, and however the point is because we don't have a kind of. Uh, a concrete connection with, with the U.S., there is no contract, there is no deal. And this is because, uh, the way I, uh, I, I say this because uh, when, when, when Thailand form a relationship with China, it just uh, sign a deal on the, the railway with, with China and Laos. So it's like when it comes to the U.S., there is no connection. But with, with China, we have, we have a tangible connection
3: And so you've mentioned China and China is, well, no longer the elephant in the room because we're discussing it. Uh, How has the region in general reacted to uh, the growth of China? And I want to keep the South China Sea issue just to the side for a moment. And let's talk about the Belt and Road Initiative or BRI. This is uh, for listeners who may not be familiar with it, if there may be one or two of you left out there. It, this is the economic initiative from China where it's going out into the region with large investment packages and it is President Xi Jinping's uh, signature foreign policy. There are, lots, there are large investment packages moving out into the region into some countries that are very thankful to get this attention and this investment into some of their national critical infrastructure to help their, their development. There are also countries that may be a little less... Are uh, satisfied with the deal that they've got and feel maybe trapped into some of their debt. So, Robbie, if I can start with you, what is the view of BRI in the Philippines, and is there a difference in perspective between the government, the business elite, and the general public?
1: I think uh, first with the government, uh, they're they're very open to it. Uh, The mode of, um, obviously, one of the things that uh, the Duterte administration wants to establish as its legacy, um, beyond the notorious uh, war on drugs that the whole world already knows about, is a a very real push for infrastructure. Uh, The previous administration was really scored, and I think rightfully so. For, be, for being overly cautious to the point of annually underspending, um, to the point that infrastructure really was an, uh, a disappointment. And uh, the Duterte administration has come in with a, a more uh, aggressive uh, position to build up uh, infrastructure uh, until 2022. And in this regard, not just BRI, but as well as uh, AIIB, um, it's is, is, the
3: Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is essentially the bankrolling arm of the BRI. Would you agree with that?
1: Yes, that's correct. And and uh, positioned as an alternative to the ADB, which is
3: the Asian Development Bank, which is essentially a Japanese-led initiative with a bit of backing from the US as correct,
1: well. Correct. Correct. So now you have uh, the AIIB on the one hand, the B the BRI on the on the other hand. Uh, they obviously welcome this as far as the public is concerned people have been caught up by all of these uh things that have spread and gone viral online about uh, uh debt traps uh, in african nations and sri lanka and and so on and we've interviewed a lot of a lot of uh, knowledgeable people both in the private sector the academic and uh and government but they will acknowledge they will not speak for Uh, African states and what happened in in Sri Lanka. But their main points basically come down to two things. One is, we're we're a different country. Uh, They do think that some nations, unfortunately invested in uh, what were easy to predict would become uh, white elephants. And their first assertion is that we are not investing in anything that is not clearly, clearly needed by the Philippines. We're investing in airports. We're investing in uh, highways. We're investing in in bridges. So there's very little chance that any of these will become white elephants. Um, and then secondly, they point out that e- uh, even our exposure – to Chinese money uh, debt wise is only about 3% of the, or less than 3% of the total uh, debt to, to other nations. It pales in comparison to what we, uh, what we get fin- financing wise from Japan and, and so on. So they say this is very, very manageable. The reserves are there. So that's, that's the public and the government exchanging. When it comes to the private sector, the concern, uh, the highest concern is not so much, I I think, again, this is just based on the people we've interviewed. I'm not a businessman per se. But I think the concern more is not so much on the level of the financing or the mode of the financing. Their concern more is a, a confusion on the direction that the Duterte administration is embracing when it comes to financing the infrastructure projects, because the Previous administration, despite their underspending, had had taken a private public partnership uh, track, a PPP track, and it worked. In, in, in the government in the Philippines, as in any other government, is very inefficient and is very, very, uh, very bad track record in executing projects, and so f- therefore people had welcomed the shift to PPP. It also, less demo- less bureaucracy, faster to implement, and so on. The Duterte administration, by embracing the IIB, BRI, and and not just that, even with ADB, had basically signaled that now we're shifting to ODA, um, official development uh, track, and that brings in a much heavier government. Again, that brings in questions about red tape. Again, they're trying to sell it as no, no, no. We're going to do a hybrid ODA PPP where where uh, operation and management can probably be bidded out and and so on. But I think the concern of the private sector is really more on that level. Uh, one sort of um, a disappointment that we're 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 taking changing directions again. Some confusion on what is the direction moving forward. In other words, things that businesses don't like, uncertainty and so on. But on from an ideological standpoint, I don't think they they necessarily take a stand uh, for or against uh, BRI per se. Mm.
3: And Sita, the the Chinese population in Indonesia over a couple of hundred years has had a tumultuous history and tumultuous relationship with with the indigenous Indonesian population. What is the sentiment in Indonesia? Now, um, as I said, setting aside South China Sea and the issues around the tuna Islands and so on, but looking at some of the projects that uh, China has been um, competing for in Indonesia, what is the willingness to look at accepting investment from China?
2: The government has been... Uh, very positive about the BRI, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. The, the, the one big project that is now ongoing is the fast train from Jakarta to Bandung uh, which was initially was a project that was to be funded by Japan, but then the contract was uh, yeah, won by the Chinese. Um, was, it,
3: was that much of a surprise? Yeah, yeah.
2: And, and it caused uh, tensions and apparently probably competition between the two countries. Um, because recently uh, we just launched our first line of MRT. It was funded by uh, Japan through the uh, international agency. Uh, But the public has been divided uh, over the issue, I think. It was uh, one of the major issues that divided the voters uh, because there has been this uh, anti-Chinese sentiment growing up, especially among the supporters of the challenger, Prabowo Subianto. So uh, they've been you know, saying that uh, China and Chinese workers are invading Indonesia and that more Chinese projects mean that more jobs for Chinese workers, but less for Indonesians.
3: Was was this a genuine concern or was this politics?
2: um, Well, I can say it's politics, but uh, if I talk to people at the grassroots, they genuinely believe that it's true.
3: We we have similar issues here in Australia. There's there's an idea that the the Chinese are coming in and buying up the country yeah. because they're purchasing farms and they're investing in different areas. But what a lot of Australians don't understand is that China is less than ten percent. I think last time I looked, I think it was down as low three percent of the foreign investment that's coming into Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, our largest investors are America and Switzerland and places like that. But and Saudi Arabia and nobody seems to be scared about them buying our country and taking it back home. Mm-hmm. So they, these kind of issues are. Certainly not. Um, you did you yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, so Tana, I've been looking at some of the issues. You mentioned the uh, railway that's being invested. There's also the economic corridor that is uh, being developed now as well. And there are some claims that some of the families involved in this that have Chinese heritage are working more with China's interests in mind than Thailand's interests. Um, now I understand that. Uh, Public opinion and media uh, reporting may not always reflect reality on the ground, but what is the sentiment in Thailand in terms of cooperating with China in a strategic way and how is that received by the Thai public?
4: You mentioned about uh, the EEC project, the Eastern Economic Corridor. General Prayut chan mentioned a few months ago at, at the CLSA meeting forum that uh, it it welcome more chinese investor so so i think the the government stance is, is quite positive and open to to chinese business that that will come to to work to work in, in in thailand however i think from the point of view of the public we are now like like most people are more concerned about the the corruption so i think the the, the anti chinese sentiment is not that obvious in in Thailand. So I'd like
3: to make this the final question on China, as China is not the only thing that's happening in Southeast Asia. Robbie, we have just seen today President Duterte contradict everybody involved, including the Filipino fishermen, by saying that a Chinese vessel did not ram a Filipino fishing boat just off the coast of the Philippines, but that they merely had a collision. For those that have not been tracking this story, a number of Filipino fishermen were picked up from the water and saved by some Vietnamese fishermen after being left there by a Chinese crew who the Filipinos say rammed their boat as they were fishing in the contested waters near Recto Bank, otherwise known as Reed Bank, which is just off the coast of Palawan. And today, President Duterte excused the Chinese crew of any wrongdoing, basically throwing his own country folk under the bus or under the boat, as it may be. For us observers, this is actually pretty shocking. President Duterte has been so quick previously to throw foul language at other countries and their leaders and even threaten war for trivial matters, yet he lets China off on such a serious assault on Filipinos in territory claimed by the Philippines. And and I'm, I'm sorry for asking such a leading question, Robbie, but what's going on here? Duterte seems to be more willing to bully his own people than he does to stand up for the national security of the Philippines.
1: No, I think it's actually very, very fair. It is also, I think, what perplexes Filipinos now. To be honest, this is not something new. It's the most glaring, it's the most recent. Uh, remember, this is President Duterte when he was running for president. One of the most notorious things he said in the campaign trail when all the candidates were asked about the South China Sea he said i'm taking a jet ski and i'm going to i'm going to jet ski to the south china sea i'm going to go to our islands there and plant the philippine flag and then again just a few months ago remember this is the same president who threatened war with canada over uh, canada not taking back its its trash and so it's the the supreme irony of the president not taking a strong position, not even to personally condemn what happened, is has gotten Filipinos really, really perplexed. Apart, I would say, apart from them expressing dismay, is the second question of the back of their minds, which is, what has China got on our president? What's got uh, his tongue tied when it comes to China, and? Uh, People obviously speculate, is it the, the financing that we're uh, hoping to get uh, with respect from, from BRI is have we compromised ourselves in, in terms of infrastructure, but even even his own economic managers would emphasize that it's not. We're not captured by any of these investments. They, they are quick to qualify that the size of uh, whatever deals we have with China is still dwarfed by overall trade and overall from from the rest of the international community. I do think that two things that people took note of, it took the president at least four days uh, to speak up, and then he outdid himself when he finally did speak up, which is, as you said, to totally come up with his own narrative that disputed not only the fishermen but even the the original uh, version of China. The latest development was he supposedly called uh, to meet with with the fishermen. If past episodes is anything to go by, he's hoping to play the role of the father who sits down with his children and says, look, uh, we have to let this pass or we have to be the bigger man or or whatever. But that essentially is playing and again, once again, risking the political capital that he has. He's just emerged from a very victorious uh, elections. Prior to the elections, all surveys showed that he still had very, very record high approval ratings from the Philippine public. I will not dispute that. It's still at about 70%. But every time something like this happens, it seems that the the president is basically gets another lease on, on the political uh, capital that he can risk and with this, it's still, you know, as as you said, this latest statement caught everybody by by surprise. And we and it happened just today. So we have yet to see actually by tomorrow, hopefully I wouldn't gauge it from social media, uh, but I will gauge it from from the surveys. Uh, but we have yet to see if he will pay any anything in terms of of political capital by way of this very weak, very disappointing uh, uh, statement.
3: Mm. Now, you've just mentioned social media there as well. Now, you're all journalists, and I'm really keen to get your take on the evolution of journalism in the region and in your countries. Now, Australia has had a very big fortnight in regards to uh, the media and its relationship to the government. We had our state broadcaster raided, their headquarters raided, and material taken because of government leaks related to uh, issues that were classified as as national security. So, this is a pretty big issue in Australia. And we've also seen the ongoing discussion in the US about Russian foreign interference in the 2016 election and onwards since then. And everybody's gearing up for it again in 2020 since President Trump basically invited any country to come in and hand him information on his opposition. I'll start off with you, Tana. How has the emergence of digital technology and social media changed the media landscape in Thailand and the relationship between the public, the government and the media, that triangular relationship?
4: I think uh, the advent of uh, social media somehow led to the transformation in, in the newsroom. For example, I work for Bangkok Post and it is normally a newspaper. And there is uh, an online platform. So right now we, we are running two things together, right? You, you, mean, you mean the hard copy print and the online yeah. newspaper? Yeah. yeah. However, the two platforms need to be different or else why? I mean, the, the story might be the same, but, but the content, the angle of the story need to be different or else why do people have to buy the newspaper? Considering the, the the fact that the the sale of the newspaper has declined over the past years, and therefore, uh, they have to adapt. They have to when when it comes to the online lens, online media, you have to like pitch or write a story in in uh, very fast, just an update, uh, so that the online version can be updated right now. However, when it comes to the the paper version the editor might ask journalists to, to write the story in a more analytical manner so that the story in the online and the print version are different and so that it, it become complementary. So that is the way the, the, the advent of the online or the social media affect. Uh, our newsroom. I,
3: I, I, is it splitting the audience? So do you find that you've got one audience that just focus on the online platform, and so yeah. so they're getting more reporting, whereas the people who buy the hard copy uh, yeah. um, are different people, and they're they're getting journalism.
4: I heard my editor said the newspaper or the, or the paper version is for the aging population <laughs> <laughs> or, or the one who are familiar with with reading from the paper. However, the the sales of the paper version has declined over the years and it led to the the shutdown of the thai language newspaper in 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 bangkok post itself so right now everything is online but it is only the, the the bangkok post that that still has the the print version but we don't know how long we can maintain this.
3: W- would it be right to say as the
1: older generation slowly become extinct the, um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the
3: print version... I, I, I've
1: heard it put another way. Yeah, <laughs> uh, with, with regards to the, to the niche market that still mm-hmm. buys print, uh, I heard somebody say actuarials will take care of that.
3: And, and But then the, the, the printed version is going to go that way and if that's the version that has the analysis in it, the journalism in it rather than the, the reporting, does that mean that we're going to lose some of the the deeper thinking that we get from the media, from the press, and
1: this is a question to the whole panel, not just to Tana. What we're doing right now, I think, is 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 a, certainly a wave. I think podcasting um, has, the way of the future, mind you. Well, I, I would hope so. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> I say that with some self interest, uh, but uh, the, the reality is, I think the the wave that you're looking at from North America and to an extent Europe, and I think in Southeast Asia, Indonesia has a deeper uh, tradition for news radio, and for that matter, uh, radio features. But I think the wave is, is coming, I think on the strength on streaming platforms, you know, as I mentioned to you, I've started dabbling in podcasts. I have a I have a small startup in in Manila.
3: Please give us the name of the podcast. Or the name
1: is Puma Podcast. Excellent. If you're a Filipino, you would get the pun, but just get to get back to your question. I do think there's a lot of uh, fantastic content now on on podcasts, and that allows for. Uh, a, a consumption of longer form more analytical uh, journalism and i don 't think it 's an accident that uh, the content that people like are explainers, um, mm-hmm. not necessarily highly aspirational investigative pieces, but a lot of explainers and a lot of time that uh, where people can have a sober uh, intelligent take uh, on it, so I think it 's just a I can't even say it's a new format, but I do think it's not going to go away.
3: No. Well, my new catchphrase is podcasts is Mm -hmm. like Netflix for radio. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit different from radio because we're usually talking about complex issues and you can't go into and fully discuss a complex issue in a five-minute sound grab or anything like that. You can't do it justice. So you've got to have a longer form. And hey, when you're at the gym or when you're riding your bike or walking your dog, you don't want to be going in your pocket every five minutes trying to change for the next podcast. You want a longer version. Now, other areas of social media have impacted the electoral process in Indonesia. Election security. I've seen elements where people are at the polling booths and you have an observer from each political party that is watching and sometimes filming on their mobile phone the vote count from the ballots that's done in front of them. So they get to see the count and each person then reports openly in the social media how many papers have counted and what the count is for each each uh, polling booth. Anytime that those ballot boxes may or may not be tampered with between the polling booth and and the the Central Electoral Commission. They've already got the counts and and you know when you can protest and you might even know exactly whereabouts any tampering may have occurred. And that's all come about with social media. What other changes have we seen in Indonesia with social media around elections and how, how did the media evolve in this latest election that we've seen in Indonesia?
2: So the last, I think, at least three major elections in Indonesia, one is 2014, and then the next one is 2017, Jakarta uh, gubernatorial election, and then the last one is uh, this year's presidential election, have seen a very uh, substantial growth of the use of social media and and, uh, also the proliferation of hoax, false news
3: as some may call it, fake news.
2: Yeah, fake news <laughs> or alternative facts, whatever you call <laughs> it. So, uh, But what I've seen evolving is the society and how the society and also the public as well as the officials, the government, respond to it. Um, so in 2014, it was the first time I think that I saw how people get fed by false news and actually believed it. And then we saw in 2017 how, uh, well, probably not necessarily false news, but tempered uh, facts actually brought down a politician, an incumbent. This with, is
3: your, you're talking about the. the, the we're talking A-Hok about A-Hok. yeah, uh,
2: former governor uh, Basuki Sahabu Purnamo Ahok uh, brought down a politician incumbent who has a approval rating of 70 percent. Uh, but then lost the election after after the spread of uh, false news, basically. But in 2019, uh, yeah, of course, the false news also rampant, but there have been initiatives uh, launched by not only the government uh, officials, but also by the media, collaboration of mainstream media outlets uh, to fact-check everything and then uh, spread the, the facts.
3: Do you, do you think people are as receptive to boring facts than as they are to sensational false news?
2: But this is the thing. Uh, the society now has has raised their awareness of false news. Uh, there has been an increasing awareness of uh, false news and hoax. Five years ago, hoax was not uh, understood as it is now in 2019 in Indonesia. At least people uh, on the street... Uh, when they're talking about politics, for example, uh, one of them might say something really ridiculous about one of the candidates, and then the other will say, oh, no, it's a hoax. Mm. Uh, we didn't see it in 2014, for example. Yeah,
1: But the, but your question, uh, personally, I'm not a fan of, of fact-checking uh, organizations. Uh, first is uh, I feel that well, we're, we're in news, we're in, we're, we're in journalism, what are we supposed to do? Uh, I come from a generation and a school if that, that believes that journalism, by definition, should have included uh, the fact-checking to start mm-hmm. with. That's, why, that's one problem. The second thing is, as I think, as you've alluded to, any editor or any online editor— any community management editor can tell you that the second break is will always lag behind the first break. And if the first break of the news is fake news, there's just no catching up to it. And That's right.
3: It doesn't matter if it gets just pretty It doesn't One, matter. Because once, once the story is out there, it's, it yeah, has a life of so its own. It
1: will never catch up. I, I do think uh, this is a huge uh, – this is a big uh, – uh, PR stunt by Facebook to say that, oh, we're investing in organizations and we're backing organizations mm-hmm. that are doing fact-checking. I think it's a PR stunt. I think Facebook is part of the problem and they're not part of the solution, although I think they can be. And then finally, I think you have to be honest uh, that, that fact-checking organizations are slave to their own biases as well. I have seen... Some subtle digs at governments uh, not necessarily my own but government where you can make the argument that wait a minute that was not quite accurate as well, and or that was framed rather too cleverly um and tongue in cheek and you could and how come nobody's calling this out as as fake news so I think it's it 's highly politicized as well, and I think it it lends itself to to a slippery slope as well. I do think the solution is on. Is on the demand side of information, not on the supply side. I think we just have to keep plugging away at journalism as best as we know how. But the ultimate solution, I think, is in in media literacy, uh, start and in information literacy, starting as early as whenever a kid holds on to a gadget. And I think in in primary school, kids should feel. Uh, getting an x mark, they should feel how to be they should feel their classmates laughing at them for saying the earth is flat. This is how we learned right We got embarrassed and we got laughed out of our seats uh, in school and we got failing grades and so I think it has to be in school. it has to be in media literacy, and people have to feel that there is a penalty when you do not know or you do not develop your own list of what are credible sources. And therefore I think there's also an opportunity there for brands of journalism to recapture that because I think as we penalize the ignorant and the bigoted and so on, and saying that though there are facts on which you will get a a wrong answer if you insist on alternative facts. Mm -hmm. Um, And you will not make it to the next grade level, and you will not get hired, and so on. I think unless we bring it to, to that level, but when we do bring it to that level, then they will start discovering. They will start tasting different brands, and then they will start being reassured that, okay, these are the brands that don't get me into trouble.
3: So we're going to have to wrap up soon because I'm conscious that uh, some of you are due on a panel speaking in a public event in about 20 minutes. So I just really want to ask quickly, Sita, while you're looking a little bit more (laughs) tense than you were a minute ago, um, I wanted to ask you about the the recent uh, presidential election in Indonesia. Now, Indonesia is the largest, closest neighbour to Australia, and it is an extremely important relationship for Australia. And it's also the fourth largest population in the world. So we all look to Indonesia and the trends that we see from its elections. We've seen in the recent election that there may have been a bit of a bifurcation in the population, a somewhat parting into two different uh, electorates. Uh, We've seen essentially what's the traditionalist Islamists move to one side and the modernist Islamists Mm -hmm. move to the other side. Is this a trend that we're seeing in Indonesia in the electorate, or is this just a symptom of the most recent election?
2: Uh, I mean, religion has been a very crucial part of Indonesian politics since the beginning. Even under the Dutch colonialism, uh, religion played a very important uh, role in mobilizing the masses. But I think if we talk about recent elections, um, yes, uh, religion has been uh, exploited by politicians to mobilize masses and to get votes, and the impact is quite destructive. It's very uh, the society is divided. Um, so what should be a healthy democratic process has become become a battle between Muslims or non-Muslims or less Muslims, for example. Mm-hmm. It's very not healthy and Did, this is d- one of the points.
3: Sorry to interrupt. Does that mean that there's actually a conversation happening in Indonesia of what a Muslim actually is?
2: Yes, yes. So I think it's, we have to consider so many different uh, things and trends uh, unfolding in Indonesia uh, when we are talking about this. But, yeah, uh, we've seen increasing conservatism in the past few years. And it's certainly been exploited during events like elections.
3: And so the the outcome of this election, whilst most of the world, including Indonesia, see, Indonesia sees it as having an outcome, the Prabowo camp doesn't necessarily agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this this situation is in court. Prabowo and his team are actually challenging the outcome of the elections. Yep. Yep. Does he have a chance, or is is this a gentleman that's just spending his family's money for his own pride?
2: Well, I think uh, the experts that we talk to, uh, some of some of the constitutional law experts, say that he had no chance. I mean, it's very hard to prove their accusation of massive and structural fraud in election, especially when Jokowi led the election by you know seventeen million votes or. Double-digit margin, basically. That, that's yeah. a
3: lot of votes to fake, isn't it? Exactly, you right.
2: Uh, and I've read uh, their argument and their evidence that it used to support their argument. It's very weak.
3: Does he? Does he just like spending money, or is he just that desperate to become president?
2: He's, he's very desperate, and he he's a man with a very big ego.
3: Is there any risk that his military past is going to play into this story? Now, I, I noticed that um, the Jakoi camp also have bought on a lot of military backing as well. is that Does that mean it completely nullifies the military's potential role in any disagreement, or is that a real risk in Indonesia?
2: Both sides have former generals uh, with influence, and now the I mean, it's not that I'm supporting the incumbent, but uh, you know the incumbent is in the position of power and has access to government agencies and all of the structures that he needs to defend himself. So it's probably a very small chance to win for the well, it challenger.
3: Makes, it makes good discussions for podcasts. So we're at least thankful for that. And thank you very much to the three of you, to Robbie, Tana and Sita for coming in on the National Security Podcast. We hope to see you here again someday. Thank you. is and a big thanks to Sita Dewi, Robbie Alampai and Tana Boonlert for joining us on this episode of the National Security Podcast. Uh, there's some pretty interesting discussions that we had there, of course. China is a rising power in the region that really dominates a lot of the discussions around national security and was a big chunk of the discussion that we had on this podcast. But media freedoms and their importance to democracy is also a huge issue. I'm sure that this is going to be a discussion that we have a lot more in the future. And if you have any thoughts on it yourself, please hit us up. You can do so by going to our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod. You can send us an email at podcast at policyforum.net. You can hit us up at Twitter on Apps Policy Forum or at Pod. So look out for the coming pods that we have. We'll be speaking to Hugh White, the author of How to Defend Australia. You can also hear from Jean-Marie Guernot, who was a high-ranking official in the French government, was also head of United Nations Peacekeeping, and is now a deep thinker at the Brookings Institute and you You can hear from Kelly Maximans, who was a top-ranking official in the American national security community. She will be talking on China, Iran, and Trump. You can also hear from Greta Nabs Keller, Hiro Akutsu, and Joanne Wallace talking to me about how the Indo-Pacific concept has been grasped throughout the region. All of these podcasts coming to you soon on the National Security Podcast. Talk to you then.